Welcome to New Year's Day. <laughs> uh, you might think uh, he's lost his mind, and I have, but I'm actually being serious. You know, the, the church calendar, the, the calendar uh, prescribing emphases throughout the year worldwide for the church begins today on the first Sunday of Advent. We are gathering together today as a church family to, as we have already pointed out, prepare ourselves for the celebration of the coming of Christ. But because the uh, Advent calendar starts four Sundays out and not the Sunday before Christmas, it reminds us that the story of God's work bringing Christ to humanity predates Bethlehem. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of time and the promises of the Old Testament. So today, we begin that celebration, and we attempt, as we do every year, to put ourselves in the sandals, as it were, of those who experienced the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago in real time, and join them in the astonishment and the amazement and even experiencing the mystery of what it was that God was doing in bringing Christ to us. We are leaning into that mystery this uh, Advent season with our theme, No Eye Had Seen, which is based on a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. We're speaking of Christ. He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. He's speaking of the glorious mystery of what God was doing through Christ, something so glorious that the heart of man and the mind of man couldn't have imagined it, and even today struggles to comprehend it. And to put ourselves in the mode of experiencing that mystery, we will go through the most lengthy account in Scripture of the events surrounding the birth of Christ from the Gospel of Luke, the story of Christ known as the Bible book of Luke. So if you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, I am not going to insult your intelligence because uh, all of us are familiar with the broad strokes of everything we're going to be experiencing from Luke's gospel over these next four weeks. But I do want to walk through uh, these passages and, and make sure that we are holding on to and experiencing some of the mystery and wonder of what it was that these people were experiencing. But before we do, I want to pose to you a question that I want you to think seriously about. Now, I want you to hang on to your answer or your lack of an answer until we get to the end because we're going to kind of inform what we may be feeling collectively together and our answer or lack of an answer by what we see on the pages of Scripture this morning. Here's my question. What are your expectations of God? I want you to really think about it. No one but you and God know what you're thinking or saying right now. But what are your expectations 
of God. Now, with our answer or lack of an answer informing our thoughts, let's begin looking at Luke's retelling of the events surrounding the birth of Christ. Verse 5, Luke 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. We'll get to what that means in a moment. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So what Luke is telling us, what his readers would have picked up on, is that both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth came from the tribe of Levi. Both, therefore, had that priestly blood running through them as God had designated the descendants of the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament to serve as priests before him. And it says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Now, that does not mean that they were sinless. It just means that they were very devoted to the rituals and the commandments of their Jewish religion. But then we are told this. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. There is, right at the very beginning of Luke's retelling of the events surrounding the birth of Christ, a note of hopelessness on multiple levels. Obviously, there is a note of hopelessness as we read that Zechariah and Elizabeth, clearly faithful to the God of the Old Testament and the Jewish religion, were experiencing childlessness. There was a season, as many of you know, when our family... Uh, our, our son and daughter-in-law, Caleb and Danny, went through a, a season of childlessness. And, and if you have gone through that season or if you're currently going through that season, I know in this particular service I'm speaking more likely to grandparents than actual parents, you know what it's like to experience that personally or to experience that with your, with your children. You know what that's like, that dull ache, that, that sense that uh, there is this thing which God will not do for me. But beyond that experience on the personal level between Zechariah and Elizabeth, there is a broader sense of hopelessness. Luke gives us a time marker. He tells us that these events that he's about to retell for us occurred in the days of King Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the appointed ruler by the Roman empire, which was on the ascendancy at this point in time in human history. He was the appointed ruler who ruled the region of Israel and Palestine with an iron fist. He was brutal in enforcing the will of the government of Rome on the people of Israel. And that was particularly frustrating to uh, people who were as fiercely devoted to the Old Testament and fiercely devoted to the God of the Old Testament as Zachariah and Elizabeth were. Because, see, the, the backbone of the Jewish religion is the promise that God would send a Messiah. He would send a rescuer. And now with the most powerful empire the world had ever known on the ascendancy and not having had another prophet from God remind the people of Israel of this promise for 400 years it seemed like they were as far from a Messiah as they had ever been I want you to think about what it would be like to have a promise that held together your life and framed your existence that hadn't been reaffirmed by God for 400 years let's put that into perspective it's roughly 150 years longer 
than America has been a country. This might help even more. 401 years ago this month, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. For that period of time, God, it seems, has forgotten his promise. There is hopelessness on a personal level with Zachariah and Elizabeth. There is hopelessness nationally that just seems to deepen with each passing day. Well, verse 8 says, while Zechariah was serving a priest before God when his division was on duty, and here's where we talk about the division of Abijah, the, the priests of Israel were divided into 24 different groups, 24 different divisions, and they served two weeks at a time performing the temple duties in Jerusalem. So it was his time to be in Jerusalem to perform these duties. It says while he was there doing this, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, what is all of that about? Well, the the offering of the morning and evening prayers were accompanied by the burning of incense. And the, the smoke of the incense burning, rising into the heavens, represented the peoples of God. And a priest from each one of these divisions would get a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be the one who offered the morning or the, the evening incense. And they determined this by the casting of lots. And not to be indelicate or anything, it's just the best way I know to communicate it. The casting of lots or something of a throw of the dice... The the people of Israel believing that God controlled how those lots or those dice tumbled and through a process of elimination, it was determined that the lot had fell to Zechariah. So he's getting this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So, I mean, there's some hope there, right? I mean, that's a good thing happening for this guy. He doesn't have children, but, but God's still showing to him some kindness. Verse 10, it says, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So there are folks outside watching this. And there appeared to him while he was there offering that incense an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell upon him. This did not happen. This was not a usual occurrence. And it says that Uh, The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. He's been praying for what? For a child. He's never stopped. And you and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So there's multiple things just happening here that are amazing. Zachariah and Elizabeth, after after decades of not being able to have a child, are being given a child, but not just any child. This particular child would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures of one who would come just before the Messiah to prepare the people for the Messiah when he came. His name is to be John. We know him better by his middle and last name, the Baptist. They are going to give birth to John the Baptist. 
And so this is great news. God is no longer silent. He's reinforcing his promise to the people and is actually bringing it about. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a child. I mean, good news all around. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. He's saying, here's how you shall know this. I just told you. I'm an angel of the Lord. I've been sent by the Lord to tell you this. That's how you shall know. But in the interest of remembering, be careful what you ask for. He gives Zechariah what he asked for, a sign. Here's how you shall know. You shall be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. This wonderful thing happened to him. And he can't tell anybody. And 23, verse 23 says, And when his time of service had ended, when that... That period of time for him to serve there had ended. He went to his home, and these days, uh, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among my people. Zechariah gets this wonderful news, and he thinks, Ah, I don't know if I can believe this. Now, I want, you to, I want you to compare that response to the response of a similar kind of situation by the star of Luke's show, Mary, which he begins to tell us about in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary knows exactly what she is being told. Mary is being told that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah, that all of the promises that formed the backbone and the worldview of the Jewish religion were going to be fulfilled in her life. And then Mary says in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now on the surface of things, it may seem, well, she's asking the same kind of question that Zachariah is asking. But they're fundamentally different. And it has to do with emphasis. Zechariah is told that God is about to do something. And his response is, really? Come on. 
Mary is told that God is about to do something, and she goes, really? How? Because Luke has pointed out to us, he's actually gone to great lengths to point out to us, that this Mary was a virgin. He's used the word three times in short order. He has told us that she is betrothed, which is a contract of marriage to a man named Joseph, but it is not yet consummated. It is a binding contract. To break it would be akin to a divorce, but in Jewish customs, it had not yet been consummated. And so he's gone to great, great lengths to let us know that, that for God to do what God is going to do in Mary's life is going to require something, to put it mildly, unusual. And so verse 35, the angel answers her, not with a rebuke, but a response to her question of how. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And then she hasn't asked for one of these like Zachariah did, but she gets one. She gets a sign. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, Luke's just dropped something on us, Mary and Elizabeth and Zachariah, they're all related. Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month of her who's called barren. She's six months pregnant. And then he says the key statement in response to Mary's question of how. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. He's teaching her something about the character of God that she had not yet fully grasped. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Now, we're very familiar with all of what I have just reviewed. But I asked you before we went into this, to ask yourself a question. You remember what the question was. What are your expectations of God? I mean, what do you really expect Him to do? Do you expect Him to hear you when you pray? Do you expect Him to be attentive to you when you're experiencing a joy or a hardship? Do you expect him to be an active presence in your life? Now, it's easy to lie to ourselves and say, well, I, I expect him to listen and to be attentive and to be... Yes, but let's drill down to brass tacks. When you woke up this morning and realized it's Sunday and it's time to come to church... What did you expect of God in coming to worship? When you came through those doors, did you expect that today God would hear, God would be active, God would be present? I think that modern Christians have chronically low expectations of God. I think we go through the motions hoping in some way that what we do will pay off in the end, but we live our lives like God does not listen, that God is not attentive, and that God is not an active presence. 
The reason I know that is because I can succumb to that as well. In fact, in my devotional reading this morning, having already prepped myself to bring this message, God beat me about the neck and head and reminded me that frequently I live my life like it's all on me with low expectations of God. What drives those low expectations? They're illustrated for us in the lives of two, and Luke has already told this, good people, faithful people. But there are two sides to the coin that we need to deal with. On one side, and not a great side, Zechariah illustrates for us that cynicism lowers expectations of God. The reason that we have low expectations of God is because we tell ourselves he hasn't heard, he hasn't been attentive, and he is not active. Now, how do we, how do we try to navigate life with God and what therefore feeds that cynicism? Well, Zechariah was faithful to do the religious stuff. He did it well. Luke tells us he did it well. But he went into that temple not really thinking that God was, was listening, that God was attentive, and that God was active. Because, you see, this one who had told countless people through his ministry that God listens, is attentive, and is, an, and is active had not experienced any of that personally because he had this hidden thing that people could know about him but didn't really know the ache. He, he didn't have a child. He didn't have a child. And I wonder how that cynicism had been built through the maybe this is it with every irregular month only to be shattered a few days later and I wonder how it was deepened when it became obvious that that Elizabeth could no longer conceive I wonder how it all just began to callous over in his heart doing all of the religious stuff but having this need unmet I, I wonder how it did for the people of Israel Again, for, for the Jewish people, the promise of a Messiah is the backbone of their religion. And for 400 years, God had not reaffirmed it. And now the Romans are here, and it's worse than it's ever been. And Herod's a jack wagon. And God's just somewhere else. It builds a cynicism so that, so that even people who can be classified as, as righteous and, and doing what they need to do, get to a point where they're going through the motions, not really expecting God to do anything. Cynicism lowers expectations. But on Mary's side of the equation, inexperience lowers expectations. We know that Mary had to have been a young girl, probably no older than 13 years of age at this time. And she 
is still figuring out what life with God is all about, and she's not experienced enough life or experienced enough with God to know the truth that the angel of the Lord says to her, that with God nothing is impossible. She had not yet had a trial in her life that proved that God was indeed in all things listening, present, and active in her life. And so her inexperience caused her to not even stop to think that God might be capable of so much more than what she had yet experienced. We live in the modern world with chronically low expectations of God because life has burned us and we, by extension, think God has burned us or because we still haven't lived enough life to figure out who God is. So what's the solution? The solution is not for me as a preacher in a Charlie Brown vest (laughs) to stand up in front of you and yell at you, hope harder! That would be spiritual abuse for me to do that. Just hope harder. Just do more religious stuff. Eventually it will pay off. That would be the wrong thing for me to do. But I can tell you to do what Zachariah, even in his cynicism, and Mary and her inexperienced clearly did, and that was put themselves in God traffic. That's what I like to call it. To play in the street where God goes by. Zachariah remained faithful to his devotion to God. It might have at times just been going through the motions, but he remained faithful in his devotion to God. He remained faithful in his pursuit of this one who he felt at times didn't listen and who he felt at times wasn't active in his life and who he felt at times uh, wasn't, wasn't present in his life. He continued faithfully in his pursuit of this God, as did Mary. C.S. Lewis painted it beautifully, poetically, when he said all of the plans of God spiral downward and downward until they get to the gleaming point of a spear, a Jewish girl at her prayers. Now, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly that Mary was having her own experience of evening prayers. He doesn't tell us that. But it is what we are meant to take by implication. That she was in a situation where she was dutifully seeking out the face of God. So what I'm telling you is this. Is that the expectations that we have of God, which are chronically low, can only be helped as we continue to relentlessly pursue the face of God, to pursue him as the voice that listens, as the person who is active, as the person who is present, to continue to reach out to him. Uh, One of the ancient men of God, John of the Cross, spoke of a season that sometimes 
people who were training for the priesthood would go through that he called the dark night of the soul, where there was a time where when they surrendered to the ministry and the call of God, they would hold the hand of God and he would be with them everywhere they went. And then, and then he would pull back. And the priest would feel isolated from God. And John of the Cross said, it's a little like a baby who's weaned. In order for them to grow, they have to be weaned. But from the child's perspective, it feels very mean. Why are you no longer as intimate with me as what you once were? And it's because they have to be strengthened to take the next step in their maturation process. Israel had 400 years of learning whether or not they would be faithful to God even if he were silent for a period of time. Zechariah and Elizabeth had decades to figure out whether they would be faithful to God even though he was silent about this need in their lives. And because they continually kept putting themselves in God traffic in the street where God drives by, God showed up and exceeded beyond their wildest dreams, their expectations. So I have but one word for you today, pursue. Let me add another one to it. Relentlessly pursue. The God who does listen, who is active even if you don't know it, and is present in your life.